to do something that was rather remarkable. Literally dozens of people got out of their seats and walked up these steps and went through doors. There was something that needed a response. There was something in a heart, in hearts, that were, was, they were touched. And there was a need that had to be cared for, and that's what those people were expressing. If you were one of those people, you either were here or you went through one of the doors, I want to say to you that what we're doing now is following up on this. This is what comes next. I've chosen this book of Ephesians because it is, first of all, one of my favorite books, which is a very dangerous thing to say about the Bible because I have a lot of favorite books, but this is one that my heart keeps returning to over and over again. In just six chapters, the Apostle Paul has anchored our souls, told us what it is that we need and what we have and what God is looking for in our lives. And how it should look in our daily living. And so this is a a rather remarkable book, and I I just love it, especially this first chapter where Paul starts out to talk about all the spiritual blessings we have in heavenly places. And I want you to to keep in mind, you remember probably two years ago when we walked through the book of Acts, and we looked at there, in, in Acts chapters 19 and 20, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. He was there for several years, actually for two years, and he was there teaching, and first he taught in the synagogue, and there rose opposition to his teaching, so he moved to another rented building. He rented a lecture hall, and for two years, Paul taught, and people came out to hear what he had to say. Ephesus was no small city. Ephesus was a large city, an influential city of its day. It had the notice of Caesar. It has his attention. In fact, in some of the ancient ruins that they have found in the city of Ephesus, they have found that it had permission to build a temple in which Caesar was worshipped as a god. You can only do that with the notice of the emperor. And so this was a major port city. If you think that you can't relate and connect to things in scripture, you need to go back and look at the lives of people and what, where they lived and what happened then. And you discover that just as Chicago is a major port city, so was Ephesus. There was all the, the excitement of a city. There was all the corruption of a city. There was all the daily trials and, and joys of living in a, in a thriving city of their day. This was a significant place. The Apostle Paul came to this place, and after teaching for two years, he had an impact on them. In fact, we're not exactly sure when in his teaching that, that this occurred, but there was, the city of Ephesus was a very spiritual city. In the same way that in our culture, we are a spiritual culture. I do not mean by that that we are Christian in our cultural thinking, but we are spiritual in that we are looking for something beyond ourselves as a culture. We know there's something more than ourselves, and as a culture, more and more Christianity is being rejected as one of the options. But we are a spiritually-minded culture, just as they were. And one of the ways in which they lived this out was that they collected incantations. They collected mystical spells 
In fact, it was a thriving business to collect these spells into books and sell the books, kind of like we sell cookbooks. They would sell these collections, and they were very, very valuable. They were highly priced. After Paul was teaching in Ephesus for a time, the impact of the truth of the Word of God began to dawn in the lives of people and change the way they thought. They no longer were spiritual. They began to think in tune with God's Word. They began to turn away from idols. And it had a, an economic and obvious public impact in the city. There's one scene described in Acts 19 where the people in the city begin to bring out all these books of incantations and they started a fire and people began to bring them out of their house they cleaned out their house of all the the leftover remnants of this idol worship and they burned them up and someone figured out the amount that that it would be worth in today's dollars and it would be something like six million dollars worth of books were burned up in those fire in that fire it was a heart response to the truth of God's Word. If you think that the Word of God is irrelevant to life and you can't make the connection, it's because you have not historically looked at the Word of God and said that this had an impact on people's lives. It changed the way they thought. It changed what they did. And it not only had that impact almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible is still read today. It still survives today for the very reason that it is relevant to life. Maybe uh, I was talking with someone recently about, uh, it was in our small group last week, we were talking about how when we get to a certain age and we know everything, uh, we no longer need church. At least that's what I thought. I came to that conclusion, having grown up in a church setting, and I went to college, and within... A few months of going to college I stopped going to church because I didn't think it was relevant and God had to get a hold of me he had to grab me by the shirt he had to drag me to a place where I would listen and he's very clever about this his pursuit was relentless and what I said in my mind was irrelevant I began to see was life-saving it changed the whole direction of my life. It was not where I was going, but I was going and changed and going in a new direction. So if you say to yourself, and if you're younger and you say to your parents, well, I don't think it's relevant to my life, I challenge you. Ask yourself, why is it still read after 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years? Why is this book still read if it's irrelevant? One of the kind of unreported side effects of the economic downturn is that there is an increase in church attendance taking place. Interesting. People are no longer being fully occupied by all the stuff, by the intense pursuit of more. Suddenly they're looking for something that has substance, something that cannot be taken away by dishonest financial wizards, so-called, or by the ups and downs of a stock market. They're looking for something that has substance and lasts, and they're coming back to the anchor that has anchored souls 
And I'm challenging you today, if you're one of those who thinks this is irrelevant and your eyes begin to roll up into your head and you say, why should I study this? It's because it matters. It matters. George Orwell, the author of 1984, An Animal Farm, had an interesting comment in 1939. He said this. He said, we have now sunk to a depth at which restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. We have now sunk to a depth at which restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. What he's saying is, we need to get back to basics. We have assumed that we know all of this stuff about everything, about how life works, and that we're in charge, and we can manage it, and we don't need any help from outside, and we're wrong. And we are in the same place now as a culture as George Orwell saw the world culture in his day as he was writing. It is time for a restatement of the obvious. And the obvious is that God has spoken and God has given us his word and we ignore his word at our own risk. It matters what God is saying. Now, I'd like you to turn with me then to this book of Ephesians and I want to read the first chapter. These chapters are not long. This is a letter, remember, written not to you. You're reading somebody else's mail, but you won't get arrested for this one. God wants you to read this mail. Follow with me as I read Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the promise of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father in heaven, teach us today. We're looking into this book that comes from you. Holy men of God wrote what you gave them to write. Your spirit guided, oversaw, and guarded all that we have before us. We are amazed that you speak in such words of power and love and challenge to us. Open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see. Help us to see all that you have given to us, all that you have done for us, all that you want to give us. May we see it and rejoice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how they wrote sermons in the olden days before there was an internet, but it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful resource. I wanted to look up, I wanted to talk about a certain topic out of this chapter, and as I looked at it, uh, I wanted to look this up. And, and by, by the way, there are five things that we find in this first chapter, five broad topics with details underneath it, that are powerful things that are wonderful blessings that God wants to give us. And I want to look at those five things today. And this chest represents for us, it is a hope chest, and it is filled with things that represent the truth that God is trying to communicate to us. These are objects that in some way or another represent some of these things that God would have us understand out of this chapter. And so one by one, I want to look at the treasures that we have the blessings that we have been given, and Paul unfolds all of that. If you are in the habit, and I hope you are, of memorizing scripture, you should memorize the first chapter of Ephesians. It should be on your list. This is one of those places where you shouldn't just take out a verse here and a verse there, but you need to learn the whole chapter so that you can say it, so that you can remind yourself of all that you have in Christ. Well, I went on the internet to search out this first word in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see this word blessing? Blessed, repeated over and over again. Uh, this word blessing is one of the words that we get so used to in the Bible that we think we understand it and we take it for granted. It's so common that we, we kind of overlook it. And this word in particular has a couple of meanings. In one sense, it is translated, the same word is translated to be, to praise someone. And so Paul begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, and it's a form of the same word, who has blessed us in, uh, in, with every spiritual gift or with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has given us blessings. He's done this for us. He has provided this for us. The other meaning of this word, and it sounds shallow, 
is to make happy. Make happy. It means to praise. It means to make happy. Um, this kind of happiness that is spoken of is not the uh, shallow smiley face happiness. It is a happiness that comes out of your soul. It is a happiness that, that is the result of a contentment with life that can only be found when you know the riches that you have in Jesus. I have a heart here, a paper heart, that represents that kind of happiness, that kind of joy that comes out of the soul, that gives you an anchor in life and gives you a reason to go on even when everything seems to be opposing you. Even when the difficulties of life are pressed against you, you have a happiness, a source of contentment and joy that comes out of your soul. On the internet, I looked up happiness. I really didn't have time to follow up on all of those. There were 243 million results of the word happiness. And some of them were yeah, really shallow. Some of them were attempts to steer people towards seeking truth out of the word of God. And some of them were places trying to deceive people by promising things that they could not deliver. Happiness is one of these things that we're always in pursuit of. In fact, you remember in the Declaration of Independence, it says that we are given the freedom to, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of contentment in life. Well, Paul is saying that he's giving praise to God the Father, who has blessed us, who has given us this internal resource of happiness and joy. It's a contentment that is built on something that is solid and it is not fleeting. It is something that God has given you. If you want something like happiness, you need to find the source of it. It's not something that can be conjured up. We have all kinds of entertainment that is really just a diversion for a short period of time. It cannot change your soul. It just distracts you for a little bit of time. You want something that is soul-changing. And God says through Paul that he's offering that. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us. Notice that this is a past tense. It's done already. It's not something you have to wait for. It's not something you have to hope for. It's something that God has already arranged. He has blessed us in the heavenly places. And he's going on to explain now what this means to be blessed in the heavenly places. This, Christians are sometimes accused of having this, this philosophy of life that, that uh, says, well, one day, someday we'll get what God has for us, uh, but there's nothing for here. We just have to look ahead. And in a way, that's very, very true. That's exactly what we believe. We believe that this life is not all that there is. And that this life is not the answer to the needs of mankind. But that in this life, we can find the source of hope and happiness and joy that not only takes us through this life, but takes us into eternity. So this is what we mean by happiness. God has given us blessing. He has blessed your soul. Now, there's something else. There's something else. God has given us identity. He's given us an identity. He said that you were 
chosen. You were chosen. The thing that I find in this treasure chest that represents to my mind something that Paul is going to talk about in just a moment here is this concept of adoption. This is a certificate of adoption. It is, represents a legal document that states that a certain person has been adopted into God's family with full legal rights. It is an identity. It changes us from the family that we were born in and puts us in a new family. We're going to look at this in just a moment to see what Paul has to say about that. But we have a new identity. And so I ask the question here, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? If you don't know the answer to that question, you need to look in the Bible. Uh, Jesus made it very clear that you were either a child of the Father in heaven or you're a child of the devil. Who's your daddy? Where's your identity coming from? Well, in verse 4, Paul says that the source of blessing, one of the sources of blessing is even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Chosen. You were chosen. You were chosen. Did, does that concept grab you at all? That you were chosen. One of the first things that comes to my mind is growing up as a, as a kid on the block, and we used to play uh, street ball, and then we had an empty lot, and we played stick ball in this lot, and it would always be either one of the most exhilarating or humbling times of your life, as your, of your young life, as teams were chosen. You always wanted to be one of the ones that were chosen. On a good day, the team captain, maybe you were the captain, on a good day, though, you were chosen. You were picked out from the crowd, and they said, come on, well, I want this guy. I want Wayne to be on my team today. On a bad day, the real athletes showed up, and you were waiting. Try not to look uncool, but you wanted to be chosen. You wanted to be picked out. You wanted to be recognized for some ability that you had chosen. This word is so significant. The timing of God's choosing of those who would be adopted into his family was before the foundation of the world, Paul says. Before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That means before you ever did anything, good or bad. If you were chosen, it has nothing to do with you. You hadn't done anything yet. You hadn't even been born. The earth hadn't even be, been born. This is God's sovereign choice. Now, some people wrestle with this idea of being chosen by God. I've even heard people declare that uh, it says, whosoever will, and, and uh, whoever uh, will be saved. Whoever trusts in him will come to Christ and, and be received. And that's true. The Bible says both of those things. It says that you are chosen and that you have a free will. We wrestle with this. We don't understand this. We don't like it because it seems like a contradiction in terms. It seems like uh, something that cannot be reconciled together. God chose. And I want to focus in on this part. The Bible teaches that both God's choosing and man's free will to respond are in operation at the same time. You cannot do away with one 
or the other just to make yourself feel comfortable. You have to wrestle with this. You have to wrestle with this thing that, that is troublesome to you. You might remember when we went last year through uh, A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and he had a, a short illustration that he gave about this concept and about the, the seeming contradiction between God's sovereignty and man's free will. And I want to repeat this to you because I like the picture. It helps me to see things, to see things in pictures. He writes this. He said, an ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of sovereignty. On board the liner are scores of passengers. These are not in chains. Neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. They eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily toward a predetermined port. Both freedom and sovereignty are represented here. They do not contradict. And Tozer says, so it is, I believe, that with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. Some are chosen. Some are not. Good people wrestle with this, and you should. If you are here today, and you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you know that God has responded to you, and he has adopted you into his family. He has made you a child in his family. The marvelous thing about adoption is that it is by choice. Parents choose a child and say, I want this one. I want him. I want her. And they embrace that child and love him or her fully as one of their own. That's the marvelous teaching about adoption. You were chosen. If you've trusted in Christ, the evidence is there that you were chosen. When you leave here today, and when you are wrestling with uh, the difficulties of life, I want you to come back to this passage in Ephesians and say, oh, I was chosen. It gives you a sense of wonder. It gives you a sense of, wow. I, I mean, I know it's not me. It's God's choice. He chose me. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. You chose me. Now, Paul says that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world for a purpose. If you are a child of God here today, you were chosen for a purpose. There is something that God intends to do in you and through you. You were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless is not an option for a Christian. Let me expand this just a little bit. Holy means to be set apart for a purpose. It means that this is the only thing we do with this. This whatever is set apart for this purpose. I have tools in my workshop. I can use them for purposes for which they were not designed. I probably will either hurt myself or damage what I'm doing, the project that I'm working on. They are in that sense holy. 
They are set apart for a purpose. They are set apart, and they are tools in my workshop. That was a concept uh, that, as our boys were growing up, was a difficult concept for them to grasp. My tools in my workshop. And I want them back there when I'm done, when you're done with them. Holy, set apart, set apart for God. We all think we have all these alternative plans for our life. We want to do this. We want to do that. And God says underneath it all, I have a plan for you, and that is that you must be set apart to me, holy. You must be given to me completely. You are to be holy. That's his calling for you. Holiness shows up in the choices that you make. If you are set apart to him, there are some things you will choose and some things you will not choose. Some things you will turn your back on because you are set apart to him, you belong to him, and that would not further his purposes in your life or through your life. Holiness. He also continues, in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. He predestined us for adoption. Some people really are bothered by this word as well, predestined. You were predestined for adoption. He chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy, and he predestined you to go in a certain direction. There is a place where you will end up, and that is that you will be adopted. You will be adopted as sons. Now, some of us uh, wrestle with this idea. Paul said that uh, we pre- he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Adoption means that you have been given legal rights, means that you can inherit that which belongs to your parents. You have legal rights. You have a new name. Your name was given to you by your father. In Revelation, there's this beautiful passage where God, uh, where it's revealed that he gives to them a new name. He gives to you a new name, known only to you and God. It's personal. It's like the nickname that your father or your mother had for you. It's special. It's just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. And to be adopted, you had to be adopted as sons. Now, the reason you were adopted as sons uh, is so that you could legally inherit what was yours. And Paul talks about this in various places in, in the New Testament in his writings, that you were adopted as sons. This doesn't mean that women have to, uh, have to, are let out, left out of this. It's a legal standing, adopted as sons. It means that unless you were adopted as a son, you could not inherit what belonged to your father. So it was a legal position. You were destined to be adopted, predestined to be adopted. God does everything according to his glory, for his glory. The end of verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has chosen you. He predestined you. He intended for you to be holy and blameless in his sight. And he does it all for his glory, all for his glory. Now, if you and I were to say that, you and I would be accused of being arrogant. But God is God. You see, we would be arrogant, but we're not God. If you and I set ourselves up and say, the glory comes to me, 
then, then we have a problem. We call that pride. It is the thing that sent Lucifer out of the presence of God. God does everything for his glory. Everything. He chose you for his glory. He chose you so that you could bring glory to him. We'll see this more in chapter 2. He chose you for a purpose. God does everything for his glory. Now, there's something else I realize that we have here. We find hints of it in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption. That means we're going in a direction. He's moving us in a direction. And then it shows up also later on down in verse 9. Uh, verse 9 where it says God making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time the Bible is God's GPS for life Uh, you saw that little clip at the beginning saying you are a bad driver and uh, the GPS talking back to you if you have a GPS unit it is one in which there is this uh, these calculations made and the way that they work in general, and my limited understanding of this, is that there's an antenna inside. And this antenna receives a signal and sends a signal. So that at any given moment, and it always amazes me, you turn it on and on the screen it says that you are in this place. It, and, and if you move, you, you move to another place, you drive down the street, you see that it moves and you see new streets appear as you approach the intersections. Man, that's astounding, isn't it? That's really amazing. How does that happen? I'm moving around. But there are fixed satellites orbiting the Earth. There is a network of satellites there. And the signals from several of these satellites come together, are received by your unit, and there's a calculation made based on what the relationship is to each of those fixed satellites. And that's how the the, uh, GPS figures out where you are. There is a fixed location in heaven. And that fixed location determines where you are, and it knows where you are. It shows where you are in relationship to that fixed location. Of course, you can see the obvious connection there between uh, the GPS and God's global positioning system. Sometimes it looks like this whole world is out of control. I mean, the news is nothing but the record, the journal of man's failure. Always, there's political scandal, there's crime, crime, there is violence, there's always this bad collection of bad news. And no matter how the media tries to dress it all up, it still is a collection of bad news. It looks like the world is out of control. But there is someone in a fixed position above the earth. And nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is outside of his purview. There is nothing that is lost. God has not lost anyone or anything. This letter that Paul is writing says that God is our GPS. He is the global positioning system. When you are in right relationship with him, you know where you are and you find security and direction for the rest of your life. God has a purpose in all things that he does. He moves all things. Nothing occurs without his permission. Nothing. There is nothing that happens that God has not allowed in some way. Sometimes people say, well, okay, there's evil in the world. Is God doing evil? Does God do wickedness? No. But God allows it. I don't pretend to understand this. 
I don't pretend to understand why God allows bad things to happen in life. I don't. It's grievous to me. But I know that God is good. That's why we started that study of the knowledge of the holy with the understanding that God is good. And knowing that God is good, we know that there's nothing that he will allow in your life that does not have some purpose and not, will uh, not accomplish his will. Everything accomplishes his will. Everything moves to accomplish what God is intending to accomplish. He does permit evil in the world. That's a mystery. It's a mystery to us. And frankly, he may never explain it. You may have it on your list of questions I want to ask when I get to heaven. But God is under no obligation to tell you. He's God. He has his purposes. God has a plan, and all things move to accomplish his plan. It says here that his will is what accomplishes his purpose. The force behind God's plan is his will. It's the force that moves the world. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel. He said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. God says, I know the plans I have for you. It's okay. It looks terrible now. The nation of Israel is in exile. You're outside of home. You feel insecure. It's okay. I have plans for you. I have plans for you. Uh, we go around fighting God thinking he must have made a mistake and that we're going to help him out and we have to help him get things right. Um, I, I heard the strangest uh, radio report on a so-called debate that happened in one of the colleges in downtown. And it was supposedly the debate was, had to do with whether or not the Ten Commandments should be replaced with a new moral code. And what amazed me were the two people that represented what were supposed to be the two opposing sides. They had one woman who said that she grew up and in in, is going to church, but she is now a communist and an atheist. She's rejected all of that. Okay, I understand that side. She thought that the Ten Commandments were outdated and they should be put away. On the other side, supposedly the, the opposition there was a guy who was from uh, some very liberal seminary here in the city, and his idea was also that the Ten Commandments should be replaced with some new code. I'm thinking, well, so why do we need this guy? You know, we already have, we have one side debating with themselves. There's only one side here. And obviously they knew something that God doesn't know. They obviously knew more than God knew. Uh, that there is a new way of living, a better way of living, and it has to be better and an improvement on God's plan. God has a plan for you, plan for your welfare, plan to bless you and not for evil. Now, we go back here then to verse 7, and Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. You are given true freedom. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I, I have this chain that uh, to me symbol, uh, signifies the, the uh, freedom that forgiveness brings. It's the freedom from being bound to a way of life that is destructive to our soul for this life and eternity. We have been blessed with God's blessing and we have received forgiveness through redemption. Redemption means being bought back from slavery 
and it says it's by the blood of Jesus. Uh, one of the really magnificent military expeditions that we hear very little about, uh, that was because it's been overshadowed by D-Day, which was the, the largest invasion ever mounted by mankind. And it's not mentioned in history books be, anymore um, because D-Day has overshadowed it. But for years, the Emperor Theodore III of Ethiopia had held a group of 53 European captives. There were 30 adults and 23 children, and it included some missionaries, a British consul, and in a, they were held in a remote 9,000-foot-high bastion deep in the interior of the country. By letter, Queen Victoria pleaded in vain with Theodore to release the captives. Finally, the government, the British government, ordered a full-scale military expedition from India to march into Ethiopia, not to conquer the nation and make it a British colony, but simply to rescue a tiny band of civilians. The invasion force included 32,000 men, heavy artillery, and 44 elephants to carry the guns. Provisions included 50,000 tons of beef and pork and 30,000 gallons of rum. Engineers built landing piers, water treatment plants, a railroad and telegraph line to the interior, plus many bridges. All of this to fight one decisive battle after which the prisoners were released and everyone packed up and went home. The British government expended millions of pounds to rescue a handful of captives. It was a very, very expensive operation. Verse 7 tells us the price of redemption, the price of your freedom, was incredibly expensive. It was the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. It was the expensive payment for your sins that is the price of redemption. Peter wrote later, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Forgiveness means that the debt was paid for and canceled. Forgiveness is the expression of the riches of God's grace lavished on you. I once heard someone talking about this, and I, the illustration just stands in my mind. The word lavished. You know, you go to Starbucks and you have a, a mocha, and he says, do you want whipped cream? Do I want whipped cream? Paying this much? Yeah, I want whipped cream. And I want a lot. I want you to lavish the whipped cream on it. I want you to, to put it on. I, I, you know, I want you to use the whole can if you can and get away with it. I want you to dump it on there. I want you to lavish it. And that's how God has given you his grace. He's dumped it on you. He's lavished it. He's given you the richness of his favor. God's will has been made known, it tells us in verses 9 and 10. He revealed the mystery of his will. He let you know. It's the only way you know the mind of God is to hear it in the word of God, relevant to life. You want to know what God thinks? You find it here. God has made his will known to you. Lastly, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestined again. Here's this word, predestined to adoption, predestined to an inheritance. He's planning it. He's saying it's going to happen. It will happen because God accomplishes all of his will all the time. You have complete security. 
He says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, verse 13. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Security is often symbolized by a padlock, something locked up, something made secure, something that is finished, it's accomplished, and it cannot be changed except by the person who has the key. It is secure. It is safe. That is security in Christ. You are totally safe in him. You have an inheritance. And God's already letting you get a peek at his inheritance in his word. He says in chapter 2 that you're going to be used as God's trophy. He's going to show show you off. For all of the ages, he's going to show everybody what he's done by showing them you and showing them your life. He said that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You were guaranteed and sealed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. There's no time when the Spirit of God comes later on. The moment you trust in Jesus Christ, God puts a seal on you. You're marked. On this adoption paper, I have written in the seal, the place for the seal, I have the signature of God the Father and God the Son, and the seal is the Holy Spirit. It's the proof. It's the official evidence that the adoption is done. It's accomplished, and it is the proof of it. And the Spirit of God comes to live inside of every child of God, and you are sealed. He will accomplish his will because he always accomplishes his will. God himself is guaranteeing your place in heaven. Jesus said in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of his hand. You cannot be taken out of the hand of God. No matter what theology someone might present, they have a problem with this verse if they think you can lose what God has given you because he accomplishes all things according to his will and according to his purpose. And Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my hand. You want to see a safe place to live? There is no safer place to live than in God's hand. There is no more insecure place in this world or, for that matter, for eternity than being outside of God's hand. These are all the blessings that Paul wants to start out, starts out this letter with. All of these things, he said, you've got all of this. This is, this is yours. Your Father in heaven wants to give this to you. And if you don't have this today, he wants you to know about it so that you can desire it, so that you can receive it. He put it in front of you. When you have Jesus, you have blessing, guidance, identity, forgiveness, security. What do you have when you have Jesus? You have all of those things. You have all of these things. You know, Paul ends this chapter with a prayer. He talks about what he, how he prays for the people of Ephesus. I want to pray for the people of Good News Bible Church, paraphrasing the words of Paul from these last parts. I want us to get a sense, a taste of how Paul would pray for you. Dear Father in heaven, I bring before you this body of believers called Good News Bible Church. I have seen the solid trust they have in our Master Jesus and their outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus. I can't stop thanking you for each one of them. Every time I pray, I think of them and give thanks. But I do more than thank. I ask, 
I ask you, God, the Father, our Master, the Father of Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make them intelligent and discerning and knowing you personally, their eyes focused and clear, so that each can see exactly what it is you are calling them to do and to be, that they might grasp the immensity of this glorious way of life you have for your followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of your work in us who trust in Jesus. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. Father, you have raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name, no power is exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. He has the final word on everything. At the center of this, Christ rules the church. We know that your church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. We, the church, are Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. To Jesus may all glory be given now and for all eternity. Amen and amen. We're going to close with a song now. And as we close, perhaps God brought something to your mind that you need to bring before him in prayer. We want you to be prayed for. Do not leave here today unless...